Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone. I walk to the 406 live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is Holly Louie. Holly is substituting this morning for Dr. Erica Reamer. Holly is the past president of the Healthcare Business and Management Association, and she's also the compliance officer for Practice Management Incorporated. And good morning, Holly. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. Our lead story this morning is about helping transgender patients understand both their insurance coverage and their privacy rights. Terry Fletcher standing by to report our lead story this morning. Understanding privacy rights is important, but the real question is whether these rights actually prevent discrimination against transgender patients. Good question. And speaking of discrimination, renowned psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick will report on racial discrimination as a result of the coronavirus. There have been some recent attacks against Asian Americans since the coronavirus originated in China. And coronavirus is the subject for the Talk 10 Twos decoding report with Laurie Johnson. Stanley Dockerson returns with a developing story on the new interoperation operability rules. And there was an announcement yesterday. That's right. Dr. Joe Nichols returns to the broadcast with his second installment on healthcare data. He's writing an exclusive five-part series for ICD-10 Monitor, and you're working on a developing story for Rack Monitor, are you not? I am, Chuck. I'm increasingly concerned by the ever-growing insurance denials for black box edits, idiosyncratic coding rules that are inconsistent with every known authoritative guideline, and other schemes to withhold legitimate physician payments. The MD burden is enormous. There are tons of rules they have to follow, but it does not appear the insurance companies have any. At least they don't follow them with impunity, and I think that needs to be attacked aggressively, Chuck. Very good. We have much news to report this morning, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University Bookstore. Reminding you that Dr. Erica Reamer's CDI learning modules for providers are now available. Click the ICD-10 Monitor Resources tab at the top of the web room for more information. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And in late 2017, just a short walk from my house, the electricity in the Hollywood Hills nursing home failed. The staff used fans but failed to move patients the short distance to a nearby hospital, and eight patients died. In the aftermath, we can see many failures. First responders did not check on all the nursing homes in the area. Florida Plower and Light did not make nursing home power a priority. Stunningly, the focus became the fact that nursing homes did not have generators capable of supplying the nursing homes in case of disasters rather than the response of the first responders. We are now facing a pandemic with the coronavirus. Again, instead of focusing on our weakest member society, not only do we have no defined plans for nursing homes, there's no quick solution to nursing home patients catching the virus. People that contact the virus can give the virus to others before they become sick. Adding to the problem is the fact that the majority of the people working in nursing homes make minimum wage. Many of them in Florida don't speak English. Staying home and not working is often not a viable solution for the nursing home, for nursing home employees. Let's take a potential scenario in a nursing home with 120 beds. A young nurse and mother of three small children walks in a nursing home. Her uncle exposed her to the virus. She has no idea and goes to work. Moving through the facility, she exposes all 120 patients. Two weeks later, five patients spike temperatures and have coughing episodes. There are no test kits and the flu for the flu, and all the doctors can do is monitor their own patients. 
A day later, one of the patients dies. The director of nursing finally calls the CDC pleading for a test kit. The test kit arrives, but another patient dies before the results are back. Let's demand that nursing homes and assisted living facilities receive test kits for the coronavirus on a, on a priority basis for this and future epidemics. Make testing of employees free and mandatory. It's never too late to do it right. And just yesterday, I heard that there's approximately 2 million test kits available for the coronavirus. Since there's 15,000 nursing homes and 120 patients in each of the nursing homes, we're still woefully short of what we need even for the nursing home patients. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. This is Tuesday. is March 10th, and you're listening to the 406 Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Anyone who has a role in documenting and CPT coding of orthopedic services must have a thorough knowledge of the National Correct Coding Initiative edits. Correct coding of multiple procedures, appropriate modifier placement, and an understanding of bundling and unbundling of orthopedic services depend on familiarity with the NCCI manual. But too often, coders and providers are not familiar with the NCCI manual and the NCCI edits. Lack of familiarity with the manual and the edits leads to errors. Join us this Thursday, March 12th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, when one of America's most influential podiatrists, Dr. Jeffrey Lehrman, leads an educational webcast on coding and compliance for orthopedic services. To register, use the upcoming webcast tab in today's broadcast. Save $25 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Laurie Johnson. Good morning, Laurie. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Holly, and hello to our listeners. What a difference a week makes with regards to the coronavirus. Last week, we were talking about a few United States cases, and now the U.S. has, 30, has cases in 35 states, including the District of Columbia, and the number of confirmed cases are 423 with 19 deaths. You'll see a map available on the resources in the set. There are more than 110,000 cases reported in 102 countries. On March 8th, the CDC issued a Health Alert Network update, which includes guidance and recommendations on identifying patients who should be tested for COVID-19. Back to the U.S. The insurers are waiving copays and other financial barriers for COVID-19 testing. And we talked prior regarding a HCPCS code that was introduced for CDC laboratory testing, and that was U0001. Another code has been announced for COVID-19 testing, and that is U0002, which may be used by non-CDC laboratories for COVID-19 testing. The reimbursement has not been established for either code. The U.S. Congress and President Trump have um, signed a bill for $8.3 billion, which is a spending package to assist local and state governments to address the disease. Last week, Healthcare Information Management System Society, HIMSS, canceled their annual international convention out of concern for the health of attendees. 
According to their website, HIMSS is planning a digital edition of their conference, which will provide all the scheduled sessions and panels online. Another coronavirus concern is the intimidation and backlash that people with Asian ethnicity are experiencing. In ICD-10 CM codes, these people may identify with Z60.4, social exclusion and rejection, or Z60.5, target of perceived adverse discrimination and persecution. The perpetrators could be assigned F40.10 for other unspecified social phobia. You can read about these codes and more on in the article, Update, Is There a Code for Racism? Back to you, Holly. Thank you so much, Laurie. That was Laurie Johnson. Laurie is a Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Now is the time for RegWatch featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Knoxon. Good morning, Stanley. Hey, Stanley, big news coming out of the Office of Budget and Management yesterday. What's that all about? Yes, uh, in this special edition of RegWatch, I'd like to say that the Office of the National Coordinator and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services have finally issued their interoperability rules. They were released yesterday, about a year after the proposed rules were published. These groundbreaking rules provide requirements for electronic health records and federally administered health plans to make data available to patients in a standardized, mobile-friendly method using HL7 fire standards. These rules also provide strict prohibitions against data blocking, like excess charges or technological hurdles, as well as specific exceptions to that prohibition against blocking, like protecting privacy and security. The rules will provide patients the ability to select their own applications to download certain clinical data from provider electronic health records and claim data from the health plans. The clinical data exchange will also take place among providers, enabling them to share data from their electronic health records in a standardized manner. While the application exchange requires only a certain subset of data to be available, electronic health records will also be required to make the complete set of data for a patient available for exchange, as well as a complete set of data for all patients. This will make switching providers easier for patients and switching electronic health records much easier for providers. The CMS rule also requires Medicare participating acute care hospitals, long-term care hospitals, inpatient rehab facilities, psychiatric hospitals, children's hospitals, cancer hospitals, and critical access hospitals to send electronic notifications to receiving providers when an inpatient is admitted, discharged, or transferred. Now, while those notification requirements that I just mentioned will be required only six months after the rule is published, there are much longer time frames for the exchange requirements. Some of these key dates include, in no later than 24 months after publication, new HL7 fire APA capability must be rolled out. No later than 36 months after publication, EHI export capability must be rolled out. Six months after publication, compliance starts for information blocking rules for that limited data set exchange through apps, and 24 months after publication, uh, compliance is required with the exceptions for the full set of electronic health information. Now, ONC and CMS envision a robust market of applications for consumers to use in both acquiring their data and, more importantly, using their data to help manage their health. 
The rule sets the standards for the data acquisition, but does not set any other requirements for the application capabilities or the privacy and security of the apps and the data that they contain. Thanks so much, Stan. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Knockamson. Stanley is the founder of Knockamson Advisors, LLC. In the face of the coronavirus outbreak, accurate healthcare data is more relevant than ever before. Joining us now to report on data acquisition is Dr. Joe Nichols. Good morning, Dr. Joe. Hey, it looks like healthcare data is no longer just a technical issue, is it? No, it certainly isn't. It's an issue that involves us personally, financially, and socially in ways we hadn't anticipated. Tell me a little bit about your uh, article that was published today. It's the second installment on your five-part series about data acquisition. There's a five-part paper that I put together for ICD-10 Monitor that includes uh, uh, information about how we can get to reliable health information and what some of the challenges are. And it's broken down into four different uh, domains, uh, which includes data acquisition, data management, analysis, and finally, a discussion around bias. Uh, The second paper after the introduction is about data acquisition. And to me, this is the most important part of this and probably the most relevant uh, related to where things are today in terms of uh, our current uh, uh, dealing with data around the uh, coronavirus. Um, so if we if we really think about data acquisition as a process of actually getting data that we can use, there are three basic requirements for that. One is we have to have complete and accurate observations relevant to the area of study. Secondly, we have to have complete and accurate documentation of those observations. And finally, we have to have a, a method for standardization of these observed facts through some consistent comparable coding and terminology that can be retained in in ongoing transactions of healthcare through claims and other ongoing data transactions that virtually cover every uh, data event that occurs. So in terms of the observations, for something like coronavirus, for example, we really need to have observations about the nature of the patient's condition, what type of symptoms, what type of uh, manifestations, and we need to have an accurate uh, uh, coding and uh, so we can retrieve the nature of the disease specifically, in this case, coronavirus. Um, as you know, currently, there uh, is no code for coronavirus. Uh, however, there has been an emergency code introduced, which will go into effect in October, U071, which is specifically for the COVID-19 virus. Uh, currently, the recommendation is until that code goes into effect in October, the code J1289 should be used, which is other viral pneumonia. So given where we are today, we we don't have the capability in our standard uh, claims type data to be able to record uh, um, episodes of, of coronavirus within the current system. Hopefully that will be addressed come October. Some say that's a bit too late. Uh, or not too late, but certainly a bit late. So so when we really look at all the different components of getting to reliable health information, the cornerstone really is data acquisition. If we don't observe it, if we don't document it, if we don't code it in a way that we can retrieve it, uh, anything downstream in terms of analysis or, or trying to derive information out of that is severely limited. Uh, hopefully, we can look at, and if you look at the paper, it discusses 
some ways of trying to address the specific issue today. Um, but certainly, we have a lot of work to do in that area. Holly? Thanks, Joe. That was Dr. Joe Nichols. Dr. Nichols is the principal of Health Data Consulting. Chuck? Thanks, Holly, and thank you very much, Dr. Joe. And you can read Dr. Joe's second installment in his exclusive series on healthcare data in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Our special report this morning is about the anxiety and fear surrounding the coronavirus epidemic. Cities and states are moving forward to curtail large public gatherings, and all of this seems to be leading to some type of phobia. Here now is nationally renowned psychiatrist, Dr. H. Stephen Moffat, who is also the Talk 10 Tuesday resident psychiatrist. Boy, there's a lot of anxiety going on these days, plus fear and panic, Dr. Moffat. Chuck, human nature has made us prone to fear perceived risks to our well-being and lives, especially those we don't understand well and can't even see, like the coronavirus. That fear elicits our fight and or flight responses to stress, sometimes appropriately, sometimes not. Flight would be the search for a safe place for ourselves and for some, our money. To fight, some find a scapegoat. Often that could be a minority racial group. In this case, who is easier to blame than the Chinese and other people who look like them since it came out of China, especially when we were primed by the recent trade conflict? No wonder that comments like this schoolyard one are not rare. Yo, slant-eyed virus boy, don't infect us. Biologically speaking, there is no such entity as different racial groups genetically, only psychological and social racial groups. How then to define the racism we are experiencing toward Asians? Best source I could find was the popular play and music West Side Story. First shown in the 1950s, we have a timely new revival on Broadway. As anyone who has seen it likely recalls, there are two rival gangs with a cross-cultural tragedy at the end. It's a satiric song, G. Officer Krupke, that presents a possible diagnostic answer. Here are some excerpts, which I can't sing very well. Diesel, as the judge. Officer Krupke, you're really a square. This boy don't need a judge. He needs an analyst's care. It's just his neurosis that ought to be curbed. He's psychologically disturbed. So, here's a suggestion that a gang member may have a psychiatric disease. However, it doesn't say what kind of neurosis, and neurosis has been removed from the last three DSMs and ICDs anyways to be replaced by nothing that refers specifically to racism. Then the song goes on. Jets. We're disturbed, we're disturbed, we're the most disturbed. Okay, then, if all the jets are disturbed, this is more than an individual disease, right? So Arab, play singing as a psychiatrist, sings, Yes, Officer Krupke, you're really a slob. This boy don't need a doctor, just a good, honest job. Society's played him a terrible trick, and sociologically, he's sick. The song ends with a question. Gee, Officer Krupke, we're down on our knees, because no one wants a fellow with a social disease. Gee, Officer Krupke, what are we to do? Gee, Officer Krupke, Krup you. Racism seems to lie in the middle of a spectrum from normality to disease, along with xenophobia, burnout, and perhaps criminality. If this is a social disease, we may need a classification of social diseases. The terrible catch-22 here for both the victims and the victimizers is this. The more you are stressed, the more you dampen your immune response to overcoming such viruses. Here's what to do instead. I would prescribe these three C's, cogitate, contemplate, and cooperate. And no, the alcohol in Corona beer doesn't kill the coronavirus. Back to you, Holly.
Thank you, Dr. Moffick. That was Dr. Stephen Moffick, one of America's most renowned psychiatrists. Chuck? Thanks, Holly. And Dr. Moffick, thanks very much, uh, especially for making your point in song. Our lead story this morning is about helping transgender patients understand both their insurance coverage and their privacy rights. Of course, the real question is whether these rights actually prevent discrimination against transgender patients. Joining us now to report our lead story is nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. This is a story of great interest, isn't it? It is. Thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. I wanted to bring this topic of assisting transgender patients with their insurance coverages to light because patients with gender conflicts have stereotyping and depression to overcome. We shouldn't allow insurance billing to be another obstacle they face when getting medical care. It doesn't matter how you view transgender patients. The bottom line is there are discrepancies, not only in the EMR system, but also with insurance companies that don't allow for accurate patient capture, which has also led to thousands of insurance denials. Another issue that has arisen is that many insurance payers are not experienced in processing claims for transgender patients, and this can be problematic with automated systems. For example, if the patient is designated as female in the EMR, and billing system, but the treatment being billed or attempting to be preauthorized is for gender-specific male anatomy, you will see claim denials and delays and or denials for treatment. Now, what's important to know as far as exclusions is that an insurance company cannot automatically exclude a specific type of procedure for a transgender patient if that procedure is covered for a non-transgender patient. Now, claims may be automatically denied when the gender markers do not match, meaning that the claim was filed for a specific service, traditionally only provided provided to gender-specific patients, and now this claim is being sent for the opposite gender. But when the Affordable Care Act went into effect July of 2016, Section 1557 included a provision that prohibits most health insurance plans from discrimination based on gender identity and transgender status under the category of sex discrimination. It also provides protection when questioning the LGBT population. Insurance plans also have coverage rules they must follow when providing benefits for transgender patients. But to serve this population of patients, the practice providers need to be clearer in their clinical relevant, clinically relevant representation of the patient when documenting in the EMR so that the revenue cycle management staff can be clear to the insurance plans when dealing with and educating them on preauthorizations, claim submissions, and payer denials. Since most of us are insured through our employer, many of the larger employers can negotiate their coverages to include and exclude certain services and specific care. Transgender coverage is not a legal exclusion, but transgender procedures coverage can be an optional coverage since this is largely considered elective surgery. So you really have to pay attention to the documentations, documentations required by insurance. Gender reassignment surgery, for example, is intended to be a permanent change between an individual's gender identity and physical appearance, and it's not easily reversible. A careful and accurate diagnosis is essential for treatment and can be made only as part of a long-term diagnostic process involving multidisciplinary approach that includes an extensive case history, gynecological, endocrine, and neurological examinations, and a clinical, psychiatric, and psychological examination. The behavioral healthcare professional's role is essential in providing clear documentation about medical necessity for gender reassignment. Some payers and states require two letters of medical necessity from qualified providers. 
this little letter of medical necessity is needed to support the patient's wish to pursue surgery, which should lead to a well-documented case of gender dysphoria as the ICD-10 CM diagnosis codes starting at F6 4.0 and beyond tell us. There are also modifiers involved when submitting claims for facilities and in and outpatient services, including modifier 45 and KX. I would encourage professional coders and facility coders to make sure they have correct information before submitting the claim. The bottom line is that you as a provider and a billing professional still need to provide medically necessary documentation support when performing these procedures related to gender reassignment surgery. Depending on the health plan, some of these procedures were previously considered cosmetic or experimental. But now in 2020, with the new ICD-10 updates to gender dysphoria condition, more insurance plans are providing coverage. It's up to your practice to know the importance of quality data collection and how it can affect reimbursement and assess and access to patient insurance coverage and benefits for this patient population. More than ever before, clinical documentation integrity must be a top priority. Back to you. That was nationally recognized professional physician, coder, and auditor, Terry Fletcher. We have a couple of minutes uh, left here on our program, so I wanted to answer a couple of questions that come in. Lori, this question is for you. Is there an ICD-10 code for exposure quarantine to the coronavirus? Chuck, the CDC published official guidance regarding the coronavirus, and in that guidance, it says that there is a code for exposure, which is Z20.828, and there's also a code for exposure, which is ruled out after that person obviously has gone through some workup, and that is Z03.818. Stanley and Joe, I wanted to circle back to both of you. Joe, I had said in our introduction that the coronavirus is now making accurate data even more important than ever before. And before we went live, Stanley, you and Joe were talking about the importance of accurate data and how inaccurate data can spread like the coronavirus. Absolutely. And with the uh, upcoming interoperability requirements, a piece of uh, inaccurate data in one provider's system can easily be downloaded to uh, patients or sent to another provider, thereby multiplying through the system. So it, it's even more critical these days to make sure that any data in a provider system is accurate. Joe? Yeah, I think it's also important to note that missing data is considered to be data. In other words, if we don't have information, we assume that it's missing, but it may not be. It's simply the data that's missing. The condition may actually be there. Stanley, I want to circle back to you because you were talking about the new interoperability rules. Uh, And one of the concerns is the privacy of data. How is that being addressed? The privacy uh, concerns and security concerns are are put on the uh, provider's EHR or on the health plan and there are requirements to authenticate the the individual accessing the data to make sure that the individual getting the data is entitled to that data uh, under the privacy rules. However, once the data gets onto an individual's computer or uh, mobile device, there are no specific requirements in the rules to protect that data, and it's up to the individual to figure out uh, how that data needs to be uh, protected to assure that it is not sent or accessed by the wrong people. Uh, there are no, uh, right now, there are no requirements or no standards for the protection of that data once it gets onto a phone. So there are some groups that, that are trying to work on this, but uh, again, the concerns are that data getting onto 
uh, an individual's uh, computer or uh, mobile device and then uh, unfortunately it getting hacked and and that data going out into the wild so there are significant concerns about protecting the information once it gets to the patient thanks uh, Stanley very much for that explanation uh, we do have uh, a couple of more questions that came in we're going to have to answer those questions offline because that's going to be a wrap for this 406 live edition of talk to Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists today Terry Fletcher great reporting Terry thank you very much Laurie Johnson thank you Tim Powell Dr. H. Stephen Moffat Stanley Nockerson and Dr. Joe Nichols, and a very special thanks to you, Holly Louie, for substituting this morning for our host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, you can listen to all the Talk Ten Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for IC10 Monitor and Talk Ten Tuesday. Thank you so very much for being with us. Talk Ten Tuesday is a production of ICD10 Monitor.